Hi, I'm Clemens Becker, cinematographer for Stowaway. Happy to be here. This is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli and today's guest is Clemens Becker, director of photography for the new Netflix movie, Stowaway. Clemens, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, there's so much to discuss with this film. I just finished watching it not even 10 minutes ago. I loved it. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to mention our sponsor today, MZ Education for Creatives. Uh, you can get 20% off by doing GCS20 at checkout uh, over at MZ. And of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where we put exclusive content not seen or heard anywhere else. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So Clemens, welcome again to the show. I just finished watching the film not even 10 minutes ago and really, really enjoyed it. What a fun project to be part of. Certainly was, yeah. I loved it. I want to talk about kind of what goes through your mind when you get a script like this. Uh, movie taking place in space. Yeah, there are a bunch of movies that are kind of, and TV shows that are in space, but it is relatively unique, you know, for a cinematographer to get this type of opportunity. Um, what goes through your mind when you see the script? How, what's kind of your first step? Well, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, the first thought would be, uh, is this going to be a ton of VFX shots that I can't really immediately relate to? Uh, yeah. And how much of uh, a story that has to do with some sort of exchange between human beings is involved. So it was quite interesting. I read the script um, having, um, having had a synopsis of what's going on there. So we have three people traveling to Mars. It's a long trip. Suddenly there's this stowaway who... Uh, accidentally and without any evil thoughts, uh, joins the party and makes a threesome, a foursome, which creates a problem. And the problem is and that that was described to me at a relatively early stage. The problem is that it gets to a point where it becomes clear to everybody involved we are flying to Mars. This is a long trip. This is not like a two-day trip. Yeah, take a look. Very, very nice. Take some pictures and return back home. Exactly. Uh, this is a commitment. It's two years, right? Is that what it, Is that what the time frame was? Yes. Okay. Half year going, one year spending, half year coming back. And that's serious stuff. And I mean, you know, th this is before you get into the depth of these thoughts, into the depth of thinking, okay, you are now in in a spaceship in uh, a flying rocket type of unity that uh, goes to Mars and you're there for six months and uh, yeah. you can't step out on the balcony and smoke a cigarette. Uh, you can't. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's interesting. But what was interesting to me was uh, when I read or when I understood that the story bears this one element, which is, there's four people traveling, everybody involved, specialists, technicians, scientists, and so forth, make an assessment. And the assessment is one of the four has to leave. Otherwise, nobody will survive the trip. 
Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. interesting. That's to me, that is Shakespearean. That is a chamber play that has something to do with a fundamental um, adversity that these people are confronted with and they have to find a solution. I want to talk about the spaceship itself because it, 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 like you had mentioned, you know, you were mentioning how the sets and gravity were just kind of abstract and it was all pulled together later on. Your sets at least appear to be real. I mean, structural sets that you actually are shooting in. And they also appear to be extremely confined. There's an opening shot, um, you know, maybe a few minutes into the film after they get into orbit where you do this long tracking shot through the spaceship and really reveal the environment. Throughout that shot, I'm thinking to myself, wow, there is like no room on this set to do anything. Talk to me about that. So, uh, okay, uh, number one, we did this shot relatively soon after they enter MTS, the actual the, the, the space station, um, um, or as they enter it, rather. Uh, and we do this shot as an introduction to the space. And I'm so happy about what you were saying, because no one else has said this to me before, but this was exactly what we were looking for. We were looking for showing the audience or giving the audience an impression of how confined the space actually is. And the shot, which was uh, performed by my absolutely brilliant um, Ronin uh, operator, uh, Roman Müllegger, um, he walked in front of our actor, uh, uh, actors backwards through the ship wow. and some of the some of the areas. I mean, he had to go through a pothole that was one meter and ten in diameter, walking backwards with a Ronin, keeping the actor in shot, not stumbling, da-da-da. And I think we only had like three or four takes of this before Joe and I were very, very happy about what we have seen. And what I also like about this shot is that it's not, you know, not none of us, nobody, ever thought of oh, we're going to do uh, a little bit of film history. Let's uh, reinvent the, uh, the wheel and uh, do a shot that nobody can understand. Oh, how did they do this? It wasn't about that. It was about finding a way to show the audience the first steps into the ship. Some of them had been there before and some of the characters, certainly Tony Collette's character. And, uh, and so we show the audience, look, this is where they're going to live. This is where we're going to be. And, uh, and I like that. It works like that. It was such a great, like, reveal of a location. It's such a cool shot. And also, I was wondering, like, you ultimately decided on the, the um, Ronin. Were there any other thoughts about how to get that across? Like, did you consider... I was thinking, like, could you mount a camera on a drone or something and fly through? Like, what were some of the things that you were thinking about prior to the decision to use a Ronin? Yes. Well, we had uh, we had a number of thoughts. We said, okay, um, we were thinking of like a three-axis head uh, on a retractable crane uh, mm-hmm. and pull back in front of the actors, go to. Um, go to a certain, up to a certain point and, you know, have the actor come closer. So, and hide a cut in in one of the closer elements. To get around a corner. Yes, as one does. And then reset uh, and so forth. There was, there was, of course, this would have been much more complicated and, uh, and with a very, very tight shooting schedule, like the 30 days we had to make this film, 
um, wow. um, we had to consider because it would have meant basically shooting one half of this shot today and then coming back for the other half tomorrow to then maybe do the third half. There's no three halves, but the third section um, um, again and just take the set apart, which would have been possible. You know, everything came apart, basically. It was designed that way. Um, but uh, no, we, we, um, we didn't like the idea. And I can tell you why. Because the basic reason, not only for technical or organizational reasons, did we not do it that way. We wanted to do it the way we ended up doing it because we, we needed the coherence for the story. We wanted to see the expression in the actors' faces. Of course, they had seen the ship. But this was the day, and it was, we, we pretty much shot this continuously. Yeah? Like the, the launch we shot in the, in the rocket as such, or in the cockpit, da, 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 the first day of first and second, whatever it was. Um, and, then, uh, and then we went into the actual spaceship. So there you are. They are now in their suits. They have taken their helmets off. They bend down in order to get to the port, through the portholes. And, uh, and they get to all the spots, yeah? And Daniel's character switches on the light in his laboratory. And uh, Anna looks into the infirmary. And then everybody gathers in the living quarters with the bunk beds and so forth. And so, yeah. you know, the, 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 it makes... Uh, Joe and I were con convinced that it makes for a better acting when they actually can go in there and like, like a kid in a candy store, if you wish can say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is where we're going to be, da, da, da. And that wouldn't have been possible had we uh, cut, uh, cut it up into uh, several sections. Talk to me about the way that you lit that spaceship. Um, I mean, basically everything must have been, there, there was really no space to put any lights. It seems like everything was kind of, you know, practicals, you know, for lack of a better word, but kind of in the set. I, I was, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, this set is so small. They must be pulling walls away or something to make this work. So I'd love to know just kind of your approach to lighting this set. Yes, uh, a very good question. Um, right. So first of all, um, the idea was to light it uh, mostly with practicals uh, right off the top. So at a very, very early stage where we in, uh, in uh, connection with uh, the design of this ship, and we had asked the, uh, our, our wonderful production designer, Marco Bitnarossa, to uh, give us many areas where we can put lights. And I said, I also, I want to have lots of areas where I can light from below. Because in, you know, th that was one thought. It's just one element. The reason why I said, let's not only have lights from the top or lights where there's a work area and there's a reading light or something like that, yeah? Uh, let's have lights from below as well. What I, the idea behind that was, in space, there is no up and down. There's no left and right. There's, everywhere is everywhere. And mm. you can't tell whether the thing is flying upside down. We'll get to, we'll get to that spinning thing that Baz Aldrin had invented uh, in a moment. But basically these things, these, the people inside the ship are standing upside down once every minute. 
they don't notice it because because uh, um, they are being pulled uh, by artificial gravity. They are being pulled to the outside, but they could notice when they look outside and they see the sun is actually spinning at one or two RPM somewhere there, relatively slow. So yeah, uh, thirty six thousand LEDs on six hundred channels lit wow. the spaceship. Uh, and our genius gaffer Uwe Greiner from Munich, um, uh, at a very early stage, he was putting the pressure onto me. And he said, you must decide and where do you want to put them? And because I have to order them. And I found a, a source uh, somewhere directly in China and they will cost us only 50% of what we have to pay over here. But we have to order today. Otherwise, they won't be here in time. Da, da, da. And so and then we had... Uh, a, I love a, that these issues plague even like big budget project it's so it's so funny to me when it's like something so silly is just like shipping times you yeah. have to worry about right <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely he said he says uh, he has you know he's emailed uh that company in china and they say they need at least four weeks and he said you know in my experience when they say four weeks is rather six uh, but we can get lucky but if it is beyond six weeks we are screwed because we need these lights and we need a week to put them in there with a crew of four electricians. And uh, it was amazing. And so, you know, in prep, uh, the last couple of days before we started shooting, I went to the studio and went onto stage. And like, it, while we were in the upstairs in the offices and went through all kinds of things that one goes through in preparing a movie like this, uh, office work, and Joe and I were sitting over short lists and things like that. Uh, the boys downstairs in the actual stage, on the actual set, they had big speakers, music pumping, and uh, it was a very, very good, uh, uh, nice, uh, lively atmosphere. And there were four guys, and they were just, just putting LEDs, like, basically everywhere. So that, in the end, Uwe could stand, Uwe, my gaffer, could stand next to me with one of these things, an iPad, and he was able to control only sections on the iPad because there were too many sure. channels on the board. But, uh, you know, we were shooting in whatever this or that section of the ship. And uh, we could look at the shots and we could look at the monitor and we could say, oh, that's a little bright or maybe that should be a little greener or something. Everything was possible. And that was fantastic. Now, what were the lights? Were they like, were they LED strips or tubes yes. or... No. Probably everything. They were everything. Uh, mostly there were LED strips built into the ship. Uh, and very occasionally, uh, when we were shooting a close-up and we had the opportunity to hide like a small postcard size uh, um, LED panel somewhere in a corner to give it the tiniest bit of fill or something like that. Most We very rarely used that. Uh, but, uh, but sometimes we did. And uh, and it was mostly used in the in the lighting situations that were a little bit more extreme, a little bit more critical. Because we did this thing, uh, and it's in the story. Uh, Anna mentions it very briefly to this character Michael, our stowaway, when he when she guides him through the ship, and she tells him it's something. It's a little bit like a throwaway information. Da da da. Every so many hours, uh, the lighting in the ship turns itself to darkness to create an artificial night. And that is something that they do on these ships. 
because we as human beings are um, just like plants and everything else are used to the sun rising in the morning, being daylight during the day and getting dark at night. And so they do that on these ships to, in order to to uh, keep the mental health up. And I think and that certainly makes sense. But even as a viewer, just to kind of know, like, where you are in the day is so important. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So you're mixing you're mixing all these types of LEDs and you're getting them from sources just kind of all over the place. Did you have like flicker issues or color issues or I mean, there must have been some problems just in getting the same exact color quality out of all of these various LED sources. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, um, we, first of all, Uwe made sure that at least with the strips that we used, uh, our CRIs were above 90. In other words, we had the, the truest two uh, sunlight quality uh, LEDs that you could get. Uh, that's important. Otherwise, you get like uh, greens or yellows or uh, something like that out of control. Uh, that is not good. Uh, and so, and then they were they were using the same kind of LED strips throughout. And when I say throughout, certainly for one section of the ship. So, in other words, let's say in the infirmary, there was built into the ship there was one kind of LED strip. So they're all the same. They're all the same LEDs, and the settings that we required or that we liked were put into the board so that uh, in the board control or in the iPad control on set, uh, they, could, uh, they could be refound. Yeah? We adjusted them to wherever we wanted them, and then that was that. And any additional lights, of course, had to be in a desirable relationship to the color quality and intensity of uh, the practical lights. And uh, we had very few, like, like skylight-type holes in the ceiling, um, which we rarely used because it was, it's, not like a, it's not like a Winnebago, yeah, where you have a, a, a window up top that gives you daylight. Um, sure. So, um, yeah, it was, it was majorly really these strips. And like I said, very occasionally a small matte uh, or, or a small LED that we were either hand-holding or just put somewhere. Now, when you have these kind of close-up dialogue moments that are, you know, a little bit more serious, not a lot of moving, just kind of your more traditional, you know, shooting for mm -hmm. dialogue, were you bringing in LED panels and little eye kickers? And what were you bringing in? Yes, that type of stuff. But very, yeah. very small, very, very minimal. Um we were shooting at relatively low light levels. Uh, so with our uh, Alexa minis running on the basic 800 ASA, we were shooting at 2.8 maximum. Uh, and uh, and um, so very little was required. And for to bring in something to like, you know, uh, fill uh, um, a face of, to the desired extent or get an eye light or something like that. Often it was just a little bounce card uh, or something like that. So we didn't bring in, we didn't bring in much elaborate lighting there at all, even for the close-ups. And, you know, we got, we, we got away with a lot. 
uh, it had to be a little bit more complicated in situations when Shamir Anderson was uh, shot next to Anna Kendrick because um, her complexion is very light and uh, his skin is fairly dark. And, uh, and so to put that in one shot was sometimes a bit tricky, but we managed, particularly when they, you know, when she, when she uh, performs a little operation on him uh, and uh, he's basically sitting there with his shirt taken off and she's next to him and she works on the stitches on his side, then, you know, they are, they are very close, but they're also very static. So we could bring a little bit more to light his face up properly and, and break down the lighting on her as much as we could. What was the most challenging part of lighting and filming that spaceship? Maybe not so much critical, but we had, we had various opinions on what was desirable or what was the limit that we would reach or not step beyond. Uh, and that is when... What do you mean? Shamir in what way? And, in, in, uh, wait, listen, um, in, in, in this way. So we have a, we have a sequence where uh, Shamir um, is waking up in the infirmary. The lights have been dimmed. He's lying on a stretcher uh, and he wakes up and he doesn't know what's going on with him. Uh, he has been unconscious. He wakes up and and gets off of the stretcher, takes a couple of steps, and walks towards the magnetic uh, um, element where there's the bay window, the cupola, which we call it, where he can look out. And he realizes that he is up in space, and he freaks out. So when he wakes up in the infirmary there, it's a dark room. The light has been dimmed for him to you know, not be exposed to bright lights in his face. He wakes up, it's very dark. We are looking at his face. The camera is above him. I had a crane sticking into the set with a tiny little remote head on it, looking down at his face. And, um, and so there is, there is where the discussion started. How much light do we need? And uh, I was for very little light and others were for a little bit more light. I can't see his face. I can't see the expression in his face. I said, yes, you can, uh, but you can rather guess it. And uh, you know who he is. There's not so many choices. This is not President Nixon. It's Shamir. It's the stowaway. He's there. He's waking up. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah. But we found the balance, and it was mostly found. I mean, we, we put enough light on him to get exposure, so we were never under in a way that there isn't anything, there's no exposure anymore. And so the compromise, I guess, which I really liked and can live with easily, was found in post-production. And I think it looks quite good because I was hoping to see very little as much as our character, Shamir, does understand very little. He doesn't know where he is. And so I was voting for darkness. I was voting for mystery. I was voting for, uh, what is this? Where am I? And so just the tiniest elements uh, for him uh, make him understand, oh, hang on. I mean, he's a technician. He knows he's inside the ship, but he doesn't know he's up in space. He only understands once he looks out the cupola. And, uh, and I thought... Uh, uh, it was important not to be too bright there, at least not in the beginning of this little sequence. 
and um, and yeah, I think it's it came out very good. I like it the way it looks now. Yeah, I think it looks great. And I'm and I'm with you. You sort of need to discover him the way he's discovering where he is. Exactly. And I think I think you achieved that for sure. I liked it a lot. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ Education for Creatives. Now, MZ is a website where you go and there are hundreds of hours of really high quality video-based education in all sorts of topics that we here at Go Creative Show love talking about post-production, cinematography, directing, visual storytelling, and so much more. Like, this is where to go to learn, to become better at your craft. And uh, that's why I go there. In fact, I'm an MZ Pro member, which really kind of changes things because even though, yes, you can buy individual courses on MZ, when you're an MZ Pro member, you have access to everything. It's like the Netflix of filmmaking education. It really is. Um, now I'm talking about courses from educators that are really at the top of their game. Um, the art and technique of film editing. There's a course right there taught by Tom Cross, who was the editor of La La Land and Whiplash. Um, they also have Vincent, uh, Vincent LaFerre is doing courses on MZ, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy, high quality educators giving you really important information. And that is like the secret sauce that makes MZ so great. So head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ and uh, check it out for yourself. Like I said, yes, you can buy individual courses, but I cannot recommend enough becoming an MZ Pro member. And here's the best part. Uh, you get 20% off your purchase simply by typing in the little coupon code GCS20. GCS20 for 20% off of MZ. So check it out for yourself. Gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, MZ, Education for Creatives. I want to talk about the camera package you chose for this film. Uh, what did you ultimately decide on and why? I decided, number one, I'm uh, a great fan of Arri cameras, uh, and we decided to go with Alexa Minis. In the beginning, for budget reasons, we were contemplating to have one Mini only uh, because it is a little bit more expensive in rental than a regular Alexa would be. Uh, same sensor, but bigger camera, bigger and heavier yeah. camera. So anyway... At the very end, we had two Alexa Minis, which was great. The A camera was what it was, and uh, and the B camera was the tiniest version of the Alexa Mini, so it could fit in uh, in the Novi or the Ronin, whatever was chosen by Altman. Uh That was the one thing. But I want to, I mean, this is a kind of immediately, I no, let me just rephrase that. I chose the Alexas because I like the sensor, and I think that uh, the Aries sensor gives us the best skin tones. Um, and uh, the second reason was that the VFX department who had, they were working on, I, I would exaggerate when I said half the movie, but it's almost that. They were working on after half the movie was in the computer already before mm. we started shooting. Wow. And, uh, and uh, the VFX department said, please don't give us any other sensors. We're all set up and geared for what we get out of ARRI cameras. And, uh, and uh, we can cope with others, but we prefer to have ARRI. Well, that, that was a match because I, like yep, I said, that I works like perfectly. It. Yes. Well, well, I was, what, when you said the movie was, you know, almost half made before you even started shooting. 
what what do you mean by that? What what was almost made or what was made? What was made was we had the company that did the VFX for this film is RiseFX. They uh, are a German VFX company working internationally and um, and uh, they were also co-producing this show. Um, and Rise uh, have one of their larger facilities in Berlin where I am based. Um, the movie was shot in Munich, uh, first half uh, in in Munich, second half, everything in outer space was shot at Cologne. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, I hope. And so we had this, this wonderful previs uh, gimmick that we could work on. Janneke Mikkelsen, uh, who has been involved with this for the longest time, had something that I don't want to go too elaborately in the details, but basically it was a video game type of thing. It was a control that you could hold in your hands and you could do, you could produce virtual camera settings, camera movements, uh, and images. They would go onto wow. the screen, onto a computer screen. So basically, the basic design of the spaceship was existing. We knew that it was going to look like, so to say, when you look at it from the top, like you can see it in the movie, it looks a little bit sure. like an extended H, yeah? With a middle yeah. bar protruding out to the sides. And so we knew that when the when the astronauts get out to walk onto the thing, well, this is basically the path they will have to take. Because even yeah. when they step outside, they are still exposed to gravity. Um uh, it's an interesting thing. I will, I will come to that in a minute. Yeah, I, yeah. I, that was tough to conceptualize. But right. no, finish your thought, and then we'll talk yes. about yeah. uh, okay. the outside world. All right. So And, and so we just put a thing. Um, I didn't know any technical details, but it's not important to me. Uh, they are presented to me. I can take the console in my hand, and I can understand that when I move forward, the camera seems to be getting closer to something. And then I pan left and right and up and down and spin it around and do it fast and do it like handheld or do go to, you can go to like a smooth mode. I suppose you can do that in video games. I'm not sure. But anyway, so da-da-da. And so there we were in, in front of a large monitor where we saw a graphic of our spaceship and, and we perhaps saw what represents an actor, a figure that walks along there. And then we can take our little console and go closer to the monitor and do like a movement into or past or something. And we huh. played with that to an extent where we said, okay, so for instance, Anna and, and David step out onto the ship and their idea of their task is to climb all the way up to the rocket, to the Kingfisher, yeah. to retrieve some oxygen. Yeah, And it's 450 meters, and that's lots. Yeah, That is five football fields uh, up above them. So they look up, and they see these four tethers, and the camera tilts up with them to see in the middle of it all the solar array and way beyond that, see the Kingfisher. So in, yeah. in our little studio space or in our little workspace in front of the monitor, there we are with our little console. We walk up to the monitor, and when we think the time is right, we tilt up. Joe has done a lot of these uh, shots there. 
he was a great fan of this console. I only did it occasionally, and otherwise I said whether I like it or not. And, uh, and so that was the layout. And then we had, like, you know, based on that, we decided, okay, we're going to use this shot, that shot, that shot, that shot, and we will have to uh, more or less repeat uh, or replicate these shots when we get to the studio because VFX are already creating the backgrounds and the things and the elements and what does it look like to tilt up on the tethers and the structure of the material, da-da-da-da-da. This was all done, or should I say done, maybe this was all laid out to a version that is very close to production before okay. we even started shooting. Okay, that makes sense. So you were using this as a previs yes. more than anything else. This yeah. wasn't like final capture. This was you were using this to figure out what shots you would be doing right during it, production. It was that, but but, but using mm. but using those environments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, Ex exactly. So now, and, so now mm -hmm. you have to. Ma okay, so you you go through this previs pro process that this kind of video game world that you had mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, and now you know exactly how you want to shoot the exteriors of yes. the spaceship and that whole thing. Yeah. Talk to me about the actual production of the outside the spaceship stuff. I mean, first of all, it is stunningly beautiful. And the thing that really captivated me is that you're, you're thinking, OK, we're inside a spaceship. It's really claustrophobic. That makes sense. We're in a small space, a confined area. Yeah. But you are still able to give us the feeling of claustrophobia even when you're outside the spaceship, which was pretty remarkable because I'm thinking to myself, like, it's frighteningly claustrophobic, even though it's so vast. Yeah. Uh, it was a really odd feeling to get when you watch it. You get the same feeling in gravity, too. Um, but I think because there's so little of life outside the spaceship in this film, when you do have it, it's really impactful. Um, that may be true. And I w of course, you will understand that we put a lot of thought uh, into, into these elements. And uh, yeah. there's a few things that are quite basic. And I or say maybe we only came to realize once you give it a little bit more, a little bit deeper thought. But may I just, before we get to to stepping out and to getting to outer space. I just wanted, because you were asking me about the camera and lens choices aren't so important. I just, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, yeah, it was, it's, it was quite simple. I decided, I decided I'm going to shoot it on ultra primes. They are very sharp. Uh, they are very lightweight. Uh, they are very available. They open up uh, sufficiently and uh, VFX can get sharp uh, brilliant images and they can play with it and as far as any kind of look uh, softening or something like that is concerned I will do it in post so this was not uh, a film where I had to create a mood or something like that and it was more important to me to deliver something to the VFX department that wouldn't give them any trouble yeah I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because it is something I wanted to talk about because it, it is so clean like the the visuals and the imagery is just crystal clear clean crisp everything you see everything yes. in this spaceship yes. and not a lot of narrow depth of field it seems like you're 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 really you can really see and absorb everything yes. in this in these sets joe wanted that uh we did not uh we were not looking for a lot of uh focal roll off or something like that uh 
we were rather saying, let's do this straightforward. Let's show the space that we are in. And I'm talking inside the ship. Yeah. Let's show the space that we are in, uh, in a very clear manner, just as a human would perceive it. Because, I mean, it's a beautiful part in uh, photography or cinematography to sometimes chisel out a person out of a background and the background falls off into out of focus. Now, humans don't see out of focus unless you have an eyesight problem. You don't see out of focus. <laughs> I don't see Ben beautifully li- uh, sitting in front of a, uh, a lit wall there and it's so nice how the wall is out of focus. It looks great uh, on the video here, but should I sit in front of you? Uh, the wall, even though it fact, matter of fact, it is not in focus all the time, but to us, we perceive as everything is in focus because when we look somewhere, yeah, uh, the Fauvel uh, Center, then uh, everything is in focus. So, but that, that was the one idea. And the other idea was the other thing. I was, particularly in the opening sequence when we are in the cockpit, where I wanted it to look even narrower, yeah, even tighter space. Uh, to me, to my taste, when I see the film now, I think, Jesus, we should have made this smaller, yeah. It's, it really? should have been, yeah, um, because it's, it's claustrophobic. And, I mean, it was claustrophobic in there, but, you know, I've, I, I've shot a couple of, war movies and I was sitting in a T-34 tank on one occasion and that's where it gets narrow. That You can't even move your head. You know, it's setting. so weird you said that because when I was watching it, there's a shot where I, I'm so bad with names and the characters, but the um, uh, Zoe, I think, yes. Zoe's in the foreground right. and then um, the someone, I forget who it was, but someone is behind like to the side of her throwing up in a bag and it was soft and i thought to myself i'm like they're really showing some distance there and i like it was just it was just like a fleeting thought as i'm watching it i was like maybe they're not as close as i thought so it's interesting to hear you saying that you wouldn't make that smaller in hindsight yes yeah and and uh, the interesting thing is also okay so so here's here's the thing uh joe and i had discussions at length about this when we decided which cameras are we going to use, which format are we going to shoot in, it was going to be Super 35. And I said, look, here is my problem. I want the space to look confined, small, tight, and all these things. So when you go into a tight space and you want to see, like in the cockpit, a perfect example, you want to see all three actors at once, or at least you go a little bit of Tony Collette in the foreground, and then you have Anna... Kendrick and uh, Daniel Day Kim sitting in the background there, and you want to see all three of them or something like that. Or take that the other way around, you're behind them and you want to see where they are. I mean, if you, you just don't want to have like a close-up over the shoulder, but you don't know what is this. Is this a dashboard or is it is it a window or where yeah. are we? You want to have orientation. In order to see the space in a, in a small room like that, you need to have a wide-angle lens. And the moment you use a wide-angle lens, everything looks big. We all know this, yeah? Look at the real estate agents, how they show the tiny little houses with a very wide-angle lens. It looks like a palace, but it's not. Then you get there and you say, Jesus, this looks like my guest toilet. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and, uh, And so I said... What we should do is we should shoot this Super 65, or 65 mil rather, Super 65 blocks. Um, 
65 mil because the larger the format, the wider the angle of view without going to a wide angle lens. And I explained to everybody and I explained with very sweet talks to Joe understood quickly because he's a cinematographer himself. Um, the rest of them uh, were sitting there and didn't quite know what I was getting at, and particularly the producers because they, they, they sometimes can't see clearly because there's a dollar sign in their pupils and they can't <laughs> see what people are talking about. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, eventually everyone understood, but it was out of reach for us. Uh, shooting 65 is very expensive, uh, at least it is in comparison to the usual. And so uh, there was this other thing, um, the opening shot of the film, and that is another small thing that I want to talk about. The opening shot of the film is from Anna Kendrick. Uh, it's over her shoulder, looking to the front of the cockpit um, with Tony Collette as the commander sitting in front of her. And uh, the thing is being launched, or we are just before we are in the countdown. And the camera tracks over her shoulder, comes around to the side, sees her in profile, and ends up over her, looking down at her in the 239 format. Why did we choose this wide-angle format? we get to that later. In the 239 format, and she sort of lies in the picture all in one shot. Yeah. That was physically impossible because the cockpit was too tight. There was no way of getting there. Not with a rodent, not with a crane, not with a roof cut open, nothing. The roof cut open wouldn't have taken us behind her shoulder. So, um, and there wasn't a three-axis head that was small enough or a two-axis head with another little gimmick onto it. Da, da, da. Everything was impossible. So we then decided for this opening sequence to use a very large format camera, and that was a Monstro with a huge sensor. And mm. we had decided to do the 90-degree spin, not physically with the camera, but inside the camera. In other words, the sensor of the red is so big that our sensor in dimensions fits the diagonal of our sensor fits into the height of the red sensor. In other words, we could spin the image 90 degrees in the camera without physically spinning. spinning oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great idea. I think it was my idea, but I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it was somebody else's. Um, what an interesting solution. I love that. Yeah. And so because, uh, because, of, because of that, we decided that the whole sequence... Uh, in the uh, in the cockpit uh, when they when they are flying up uh, was to be shot on red so that's the one exception from the otherwise uh, from the airy cameras being used and um, and with the red sensor being so large we um, had to on other occasions we had to use uh, relatively long focal lengths, and that gives us the one shot that you are talking about, where Daniel in the background is throwing up into a air sickness bag, uh, and he, uh, at the beginning of this shot, is out of focus, something that otherwise rarely happens in the film. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, make, it makes you really kind of notice it in a way, or it, not that you notice it because the film just began, yeah. but... It's interesting to see something more, I guess, traditional in the opening shots and then a lack of it later on. I just liked it. I thought it was a really good choice and really made me feel like I was in that environment. 
Yeah. So very cool. But I do want to talk about the outside. Yes. So let's let's talk about the way that you approach this kind of outside the spaceship because it it takes a while to get there. You're inside for mostly the whole film up until the last like what half hour or so, 20 minutes. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. when you go outside, there is still gravity, which was something that I was sort of like, is that possible? Like, does that happen? I don't know. But you kind of go with it because you're watching a movie. But Interesting choice, because it did kind of make me feel like, am I watching something that is real? Am I watching something that could actually happen? So I'd love to know about that. Mm-hmm. And and also just your approach to that, the, the way that you shot the outside, now that you are in space, mm-hmm. with varying degrees of gravity, it kind of becomes less and less as you go up the, uh, up the, the rope there. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. Talk to me about the way you approach that entire sequence. Yes. Baz Aldrin, one of the astronauts, that was uh, uh, up on the moon together with a couple of other very famous people, Mr. Armstrong, etc. He has designed this contraption. And what it is basically is, so you have a space station. You reach it, flying up to it in a rocket. You lock yourself onto the space station. I'm putting it in very simple words so everyone can understand. You, yeah, so I can understand. You this, is about, this is about as technical as I can get. Once again, <laughs> you said that. Okay, so, yes. so you lock yourself onto it. On your back end is a huge rocket that has fuel, which propelled you up to where you are right now. As you are reaching the space station, the rocket disconnects itself <clears throat> from your back end, from the, from the uh, cockpit's back end, and with tiny little uh, rocket motors, maneuvers itself to the center of the space station, which is like a big H, the very center of it, and locks itself into a contraption that is there. Once it is locked in with little rockets, it pulls itself away from the actual spaceship, carrying with it a a middle section, if you want to put it that way, that later on bears the solar panels. So as it pulls itself away, it is at the same time on three, no, four big ropes. It's tethered to the ship as such. So what it does is it flies away from the spaceship, pulling with it the solar array. When it has reached halfway of where it was going to go, The solar array stops and the rocket keeps flying up until the lines become taut at a distance of 450 meters. That is very far away. So now there's a permanent stretch on these four ropes. In the middle, there's a a thing that looks like the center of a construction crane. And from its sides unfold the very lightweight and kind of wobbly solar uh, panels that stretch out like wings, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And they are positioned in such a way that they face the sun at all times. Once this thing is stretched, now you have the spaceship at one end, four tethers, and a big rocket at the other end. It's a contraption that is 450 meters long. Mm. Once these lines are taut, Small rockets at the bottom, meaning at the spaceship, fire in one direction, and at the rocket up top, fire in another direction, so that this whole thing slowly starts spinning. And it spins at somewhere between 1 and 2 RPM. 
And by doing so, it creates a gravity. Everything is pulled to the outside like it would on any other wheel or something like that. And, yeah, yeah. Th and that is the artificial gravity that happens at, at an amount X. I can't, I can't tell. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a number for it. It's relatively close to the amount of gravity that we experience when we walk on Earth. The only difference is there's a small momentum in one direction. So when you first stand up in it, not that I have done it, but I can imagine, when you first stand up in the ship, you will be able to stand upright, but you're a little bit bent because the floor underneath you, in theory, is moving away in a huge circle, but mm. it's kind of moving forward. It's a little bit like going to the toilet in, a, in an aeroplane at 10,000 uh, meters high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you sort of have to walk forward up against a resistance. Yep. Um, a small version of that is what's happening up there. Uh, there's all kinds of literature about this, but people like the specialists are telling us, yes, it is possible. Yes, it would work. And yes, after a short while in the ship, you adapt to it and you don't notice the forward movement anymore. You just move normally like anyone else would. So now that they sure. climb up the ladder and they are, so to say, on, on the roof of their little house being the space station, they are still exposed to the same kind of gravity. It's like, you know... Uh, one thousand or less or, or so, yes? And, uh, and then they walk up to the tether. And as they pull themselves up, it's like climbing a mountain because they're being pulled to the outside. However, when they get to the center, the gravity becomes less and less and less and less. And when they are at the center, there's no more pull in any direction. So there is zero gravity. Ah. Then they go across the solar panel in order to go what we call up to the kingfisher. The up every, once every minute becomes a down. Yeah. So now they are moving away from the center again and gravity grabs them again. So in other words, they have now to hold on tight because as they are being thrown towards the kingfisher, gravity is hitting again and they have to sort of put the brakes on in order not to fly off. Yeah, uh, And then they land on the kingfisher, they do their business, and then they have the canister full of oxygen, and then they pull themselves up again. It's now even heavier, which is why they put the thing on a rope between the two so that both of them can pull up because, the, you know, in gravity, that canister weighs 16 kilograms. Uh, up in the center, it weighs, like themselves, nothing. And then they slide back down to the ship where the unfortunate thing happens, which yeah, is... Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is the canister falling off and flying into space. And, and it's such a great scene. And just watching them climb up those ropes is just so cool to watch. Yes. Um, I, talk to me about the way that this was shot, because you are kind of shifting through states of gravity. Mm -hmm. You are on a rope in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, visual effects work clearly. Mm -hmm. So... Tell me just kind of how you structured these scenes and how you how you shot them. Okay, uh, very um, very easy structure. The very very distant shots, the shots that are as if they are taken from a camera that is four kilometers away in space and sees this whole contraption yeah. flying. That's CG. That's there's the figures are CG. Uh, the moment we get close enough to understand, this is Anna Kendrick and Daniel Day Kim. 
um, we uh, have two versions. The one version is we were shooting in a soundstage in Cologne, which, and it's interesting, I'm, I'm, I can proudly say that, I shot there, at 26 meters high, which is times three in feet, is the highest soundstage of the world. Wow. Nowhere, not in America, not in Canada, nowhere is a soundstage with a building height of 26 meters in Cologne, out of all places. I mean, I didn't. Wow. That, but, but that's interesting. Uh, that is. MMC. What's the name of the studio? MMC Studios in Cologne. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so uh, what we did was we built the con contraption in there. I mean, part of the ship was in there as well. Uh, and then we have the four tethers, and they were brought up to the ceiling. Um, the rocket was also there, but it wasn't at the other end of the tethers because that would have been too far away. So now, gradually, the gravity that our actors are exposed to diminishes as they are climbing up to the solar panels where there's zero gravity. So our actors were in their spacesuits and they were hanging on ropes. Yeah. So stunts had put a thing on them and so two thin lines and they were hanging from the ceiling and in a controlled way could be pulled up. The camera was on a 45 Scorpio crane, 45 foot Scorpio crane, telescopic crane with a Maximus head, which is like a seven axis head. Did you ever know that there's seven axis? Well, anyway. Wow. It's a, it's a <laughs> seven. Cool. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I just looked it up yesterday. Once again, how many axes has it done? Yeah, seven axis. Yeah, very impressive. I had worked with it before. So the camera can basically, you can stick it uh to the front end of the crane, so it sticks out the front. It's not hanging or it's not top-mounted, so it sticks out the front, and it has yeah. the ability to go anywhere. And so as they are climbing up and as they are being pulled up with the whole contraption in the studio being upright, the camera spins to a 90-degree angle. In other words, we are watching an actor that is actually being pulled to the ceiling, but in our 90-degree turned image, he or she looks like flying left to right in our image. Mm. And, uh, and then we can even go beyond as they go past uh, the, um, the solar array. We could uh, then spin the camera even more and the whole thing looks like wings. Weightless. And of course, we have X wow. had to remove the lines that are carrying the actors. And it was quite stressful for the actors. And sometimes it was stunt people in there. And sometimes it was actors in there. And because of budgetary restrictions, there were only two spacesuits and the people were sweating. So stunt woman steps out and the whole thing is wet and it smells a bit. And actress says, I don't want to get into a wet suit that smells of someone. <laughs> so a hairdryer has come in or it's all organized in such a way that actress doesn't have to step in after stunt woman was in there or something like that. And they were all using very elaborate deodorants. And so it worked quite well. It, uh, That's it so good. crazy. You only yeah. had two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, because these damn things, I mean, the, the, the original ones that we were going to get out of a uh, prop shop somewhere in the States where um, outrageously expensive at just under $100,000. And, uh, and uh, wow. we bought them at, I don't know what price, but much, much cheaper. We had a, we had a manufacturer in Sweden who did uh, very good suits 
uh, in the beginning, uh, and Joe was quite excited about it. Uh, but the manufacturer, for reasons that are unknown to me, uh, very close to our start date, uh, stepped away from the job, didn't do it. So we had to go with like the mid solution, which we then worked on massively because oh, there had to be a fan in there. But it's, it's getting damn hot in these things. And you have to yes. make sure that you don't get fogged up in the visor. And the visor as such is a huge problem. And we were all very, very afraid that we would see ourselves and the camera and so forth in the visor reflected. Turns out in tests that that is almost not the case uh, because, because the bulb of the visor is so convex that everything that is in fact relatively big uh, turns into very, very small, plus the genius uh, gaffer had built us uh, these uh, these Easter bunny ears, these lights that are on the top on either side, which are actually yeah. part of a, the usual spacesuit design. And so you have two lights in there that are going out the front so the person can see. Uh, but then what we did in the arm that is, so to say, carrying these forward lights, we had two little LED strips that could be individually switched and dimmed and that were just far enough out to light the actor's face. So we, oh, could, wow. we could therefore avoid something that I hate so much. I've, I shot it myself on a number of occasions, and I've seen it so many times. When inside the helmet, there's a row of LED lights, and I just hate that, and it makes people look ugly and so forth. So we had this thing, and so the actors were lit from either side. We could even backlight them if the cameraman desired to have, oh, let's get a little backlight. Take the front down a little bit. That's yeah. a cool trick. So you were lighting them inconspicuously through those little those little Easter bunny ears. Yes, we or were. Easter bunny. Yes. Bunny yes. ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got yeah. Easter on the mind, I guess. That's cool. And and I did notice that they were lit differently than what you see in a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, by not having the light inside. And I was thinking it was just some color grade trick, like power windows or something just to brighten up their face. But yeah. it, that's interesting to see that that was done that way. I love those little tricks. In space, you clearly only have one light source. I mean, you have the light from the sun and that's it. And in this film, Stowaway, when you're outside, like you have like no perspective on where you are. You're just in complete blackness. Talk to me about those decisions and how that impacted the way you shot and lit. Uh, yeah, it was very interesting. It became clear to us that there is, there is, other than perhaps from the suit or from sections of the spaceship, there might come a bounce. Otherwise, there's one sharp light coming from a very, very distant sun. And so the rays of that light run parallel to each other, which is something that basically physically doesn't happen with light sources down here. You can't be far away enough. Uh, so there's a special character of sunlight. Uh, and it's not very pretty up there. It's ugly. And when they are climbing up the tethers, uh, it becomes even uglier because they're lit from just one side. Mm -hmm. And that is that. And in order to create the other thing, one second, the other thing is that um, our contraption is spinning once a minute. It does a full revolution once a minute. In other words, the direction of the light changes constantly. Yeah, What came from the right now comes from the left as you're going down. Mm. And, and so what we did was, uh, with the sun being so distant in theory, we put uh, 
are we had one very strong HMI light with the lens taken off. So it's basically just a light bulb to make the source of light as sharp as possible. We had that on a crane and the crane was moving in circles. Yeah, As we could not move the set, uh, it was the sun that moved. And uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a challenge and it gave us some interesting lighting situations. Not all of them were pretty, but we lived with it because we said, okay, this is what it's going to look like up there. Uh, and, uh, and no bounce or anything was ever used. So while we had 36,000 LEDs lighting the interior of the ship, we had one light source lighting the exterior. That was interesting. You have, I'm sure you just scratched the surface of all the things that you did and learned throughout this whole process, but uh, our time is up, but I really encourage everybody, go and watch Stowaway. It's on Netflix right now. It's really fun. And now, after after this conversation with Clemens, like you can go back and kind of think about all these scenes and how we approached it. And I, I'm certainly going to be watching it again because I want to take what you told me and sort of apply it as I'm watching it the next time for... Uh, just for fun, because I'm a film geek. That's why. <laughs> and I know okay. you are, too. That's why you're watching. So thank you so much, uh, Clemens, for being on the show. Where can people go to learn more about you? Do you, um, do you, have? Do you have an Instagram, Twitter? Where IMDb. There you are. Mm-hmm. All right. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So That's there it is. Stowaway on Netflix. And uh, Clemens Becker, thank you so much for joining us. The film is great. And uh, you are a lot of fun to talk to. So we hope you come back. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to coming back and uh, uh, enjoy the film. All right, I want to thank Clemens Becker for coming on the show and talking to us all about his great new film, Stowaway. I really love this film. It's a lot of fun, and I strongly suggest you guys check it out if you haven't already, especially now, after hearing all the stories about how they made it. Like, it's a no-brainer. You've got to check it out. I also want to thank, uh, thank Connor Crosby, he is our producer for the show, and you can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And, of course, Dave Siegel over at siegelsound.com, uh, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so delicious. I want to encourage you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Simply search Go Creative Show, hit subscribe, and you will never miss an episode. Of course, we're also posting all the time on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and in YouTube. We put a lot of exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. So check that out over at YouTube. Uh, All you got to do is search Go Creative Show everywhere and you will find us. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And of course, if you want to follow me to find out what I'm doing in my world uh, with production and BC Media and all of that stuff, I do a ton of remote production now and I'm showing people a lot of the behind the scenes there. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. Thank you for joining us today and we'll see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. 